Open your Bibles to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Before I go up to start the service, I think about the different people on the stage here, and uh, one of the things I think about and pray for as I pray for these men and women up here is that they will disciple us, and <clears throat> I hope that you think about it that way as well. I appreciate that we don't just sing songs and we're just done with it. We actually try to think about the words because the words talk about our God, and we can meditate upon him, and uh, sometimes people say, like, where's discipleship in a church? There's many different settings, but the main discipleship time for us is this right here. We gather together as this church to be discipled in the ministry of the word. And actually, we do that through singing and scripture reading as well. In the depths of despair, Psalm 130, there's a true story of a young Catholic man who was in deep depression. He was overwhelmed by the guilt of his sin He tossed and turned at night. He was scared of storms because he imagined the wrath of God for his sin coming upon him. Every Sunday throughout the week, his priest and religious professors preached God's righteous judgment for his sin, and it scared him. This was his testimony he wrote. He said, he wrote, I felt that before God, I was a sinner. With an extremely troubled conscience, I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction, in other words, by my works. I did not love, no, rather, I hated the just God who punishes sinners. This young man was so overwhelmed by his sin, and the only hope that he found was in his church and in the religious teachers as they taught him to follow the religious uh, Catholic rituals to have better self-determination. And even in that, he was discouraged because he realized he could never overcome his sin. He could never escape the just wrath of God. So he often would cry in despair. And in his darkest moments, he was certain that the earth would open up and he would be swallowed up in hell. That is until one day he was reading Romans 1.17, the scripture we read this morning. The righteous shall live by faith. And he meditated on that and then began to think about other scriptures. And he found the glorious truth of the gospel. And that is that Christ offers his own righteousness as a gift to those who have faith in him. And he went from despair to joy as he discovered the truth of God's righteousness. That his righteousness is actually a blessing to those who repent and believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. He realized that Christ lived the righteous life he could never live, and he lived it in his place. He realized that Jesus Christ died as the righteous one for him, the unrighteous one. He realized that Jesus rose from the grave as the righteous victor. And this young man placed his faith in Jesus, the righteous one, and received the gift of righteousness. He was justified. This young man's name was Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer 
and this is the day we're celebrating the Reformation, and he was one of the key figures. And this was an experience he had that helped him understand that it's by faith alone that we're saved. For many of the Reformers, Psalm 130 was one of their favorite psalms. In fact, Martin Luther even, even wrote a hymn about it. I listened to a couple of renditions this past week, and it was a blessing. He wrote a hymn based upon Psalm 130. And this psalm declares the truth that God is the one who justifies. This is a gospel song. It declares that God is the one who redeems. Only he can save. Psalm 130 was written by a musician whose faith was in the Lord. However, he was in despair because of his own sin. And yet what he does in this psalm is he looks to the Lord for forgiveness and for redemption. So this psalm is a psalm for God's covenant family. This is a psalm that should give us assurance that we are forgiven of our sins. I believe the main point, therefore, of this psalm is this, that those who are in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, with the Lord, can have confidence that they are forgiven of all their sins. That those who are in a covenant relationship with the Lord can have confidence that they are forgiven of all of their sins. This is a penitential psalm that leads us to understand that we're sinners, but God offers us forgiveness. There's uh, four of these type of psalms that Martin Luther pointed to. He called them Pauline-type psalms. Of course, Paul didn't write them, but he was saying they're like Paul's writings, in that he said this, they teach us that forgiveness of sins is granted without the law and without works. So the psalmist here is like Luther, who found himself in despair because of his sin, but he looked to the Lord, the Redeemer. So let's read this psalm together. Would you stand with me as I read Psalm 130? You can follow along as I read it out loud. Psalm 130. Four stanzas was a psalm to be sung. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for the truth found in this psalm. Lord, help us to understand. Lord, bring us to a place where we recognize our sin, but we look in faith to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look in verse 1, he says, out of the depths I cry 
to you. The Hebrew word for depths there speaks of the lowest parts of the sea. In fact, in Isaiah 51, uh, 10, he uses this word, Isaiah uses this word to describe the bottom of the sea, the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. If you think about it, the bottom of the sea, and if you go out to the ocean, the bottom of the ocean is really the lowest you can possibly get. And so what he's saying here, he says, I, I'm sinking down. It's like he's, he's drowning. He's going further and further down, and he's going as far down as you can possibly go. When we think about a person being pulled down into the depths of the sea, who do we think about? Jonah, right? Jonah was was thrown overboard. Remember, the sky was dark and the waves were tossing and turning. They were nowhere near land. They threw him overboard. The waters were overwhelming him, and he began to sink into the sea. And then a great fish came and swallowed him up. And now he was in a dark, acidic coffin that took him even lower. That's the description here. And if you remember in in Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, Jonah says, this is his testimony, that in my distress, in that acidic coffin there in the sea, he says, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. That's the cry of this psalmist right here. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. You ever been there? You ever been there? You ever felt like that? Maybe you're you're there right now. Maybe you were there this past week. Maybe you felt like that this past week. I think as Christians, we can all say we've had times like that. In some sense, we all should have when we consider our sin and how offensive it is to God and actually what we deserve. So let me first say, as a Christian, we have these kind of feelings. Sometimes it's because of our sin. Sometimes it's because of foolish decisions we make. Honestly, sometimes it's because we have emotion that overcomes our soul. It's hard to even understand what we're even feeling bad about, but We have these feelings and we can feel like we're drowning and we can't get out. You ever had those feelings? And that's what this guy is feeling. The psalmist is feeling like right here. He's feeling this this depression because of his sin. I think it's important to recognize as Christians that this is actually something that many Christians face. And let me just say this and understand what I'm going to say. It's okay. God actually has given us emotion as a gift to direct our attention attention to him. Now, we shouldn't stay there. It's not where God wants us to stay. And so we look at this psalm right here, and this psalm actually gives us instructions on how to direct our attention to him when we have those feelings of despair. When you have those feelings of despair, what should you do? What are those responses that you should have to God? Well, in the psalm here, we see four responses to the Lord, and we see that in the four stanzas of this song here. So when you're in the depths of despair, what should you do? First of all, cry out for Yahweh's covenant mercy. I'll tell you in a second why I put up there Yahweh. This is the name for God. Cry out for Yahweh's covenant mercy. Look at verse 1. He says, out 
of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. So here he's crying out to the Lord. The name for the Lord there, the Hebrew word is Yahweh. Then in verse 2, O Lord, that's the Hebrew name Adonai, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So here you have this psalmist crying out to God. Notice how the name he uses for God there in verse 1. He uses two names for God. The first one is the name Yahweh. And just a little plug, again, I don't know why these keep coming up, but ladies, I think next week your Bible study, you're dealing with this. Is it next week? Oh, two weeks. Okay, you're dealing with Yahweh. So I don't want to steal your th- the thunder for that one. But the name Yahweh here is the personal covenant name for God. And the translators, you can see there, actually, if you have probably most modern translations have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I've heard, you've heard me say this before. That is, helps us to understand that's the Hebrew name Yahweh, the personal name for God. Actually, reading uh, the New Legacy Standard Bible this past week, and I was really excited because they actually translate that Yahweh. So anyone reading that in here? Anyone? Okay. Okay, a couple people there. There you go. And uh, it's very helpful for us because when we read that, we recognize that the pleas for mercy are based upon God's covenant. That he, He's saying here, listen, I believe that I'm in God's covenant family, and that's the basis for me crying out to God. In fact, notice the beginning of each stanza, stanza calls upon the name of Yahweh. Look at verse 1. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Yahweh. Look at verse 3, the beginning of the second stanza. Verse 3. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities. Look at verse 5. I wait for the Lord Yahweh. Verse 7, last stanza. O Israel, hope in Yahweh, hope in the Lord. There are a number of names the psalmist could have used to refer to God, but he chose this one for a very special reason, and then it helped him remember the covenant relationship that God has with him. Sometimes when you see a couple and maybe they call each other little pet names or some kind of name that is sentimental, you know, honey, um, schnookums. I don't know if anyone uses that, but beloved. And sometimes it tends to be older couples. It's kind of a sweet little name or whatever. I knew of a person once that uh, he called his wife Sugar Lips. And he accidentally, awkwardly called someone else that name once, you know. So, but, but the point, the point of using a name like that is you're saying that this is a person that I have a special relationship with. If you're married to them, you have a covenant with them. And so you're recognizing that. And it's a really bad illustration of God's name here. But the point is this. You use that name to to denote that that person is in a special relationship with you. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, this God has a special relationship with me. God has chosen to set his love upon me. So the basis for this cry is is in the character of God. It's that God is a God who loves. God is a God who is faithful to keep his covenant. And again, this is a a Jewish uh, man here that's writing this, and he is in a covenant relationship with his Lord based upon the old covenant. But even more for us, we have an even better covenant. 
we have the new covenant. The new covenant promises us that we are forgiven. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. At the Lord's table, we celebrate that Jesus instituted this new covenant. Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant promises that because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We have sweet fellowship with the Father. In the moment, we're going to celebrate that Lord's table. We're going to celebrate that covenant that the Lord has made with us. We also remember that as covenant people, we still sin. We still feel the guilt of our sin, and we should. We, we can feel down. We can feel in despair because of our sin. And in in reality, as we really consider our sin and the holiness of God, we should feel that way initially, but we should turn that in faith to the Lord. I think about, think about Paul in Romans chapter seven, you know, as he meditated on the law and God's commands, they're beautiful commands, but they help me see how wicked and sinful I am. And as he meditated on his own sinfulness and his own inability to be able to please God in his his own self, he, he cried out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What's the answer to that? And he gives the answer in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here Paul had this despair of his sin, but then he turns in faith and says, Jesus is my Savior. He's the one that delivers. And then he goes into that wonderful chapter that we talked about a few weeks ago, Romans chapter 8, and he gives the assurance of his salvation. And do you realize the assurance of his salvation in Romans chapter 8 came after Romans chapter 7 where he recognizes his sin and he cries out and says, Jesus is my Savior. He is my Yahweh. He's my Lord. So when you're in the depths of despair, what should you do? Cry out for Yahweh's covenant mercy. Lord, show mercy to me. And then next, worship Yahweh for his covenant promises. When you are in the depths of despair, worship Yahweh for his covenant promises. Look at verse 3. This is the next stanza. Stanza number 2, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Notice at the end of verse 4, at the end of that second stanza there, reads, the reason God forgives us is so we will fear him. The reason God forgives us is so we will fear him. This is the fear of the Lord. This is that reverent awe that we have for God. Some translations translate this as worship. And I think that's a pretty simplistic way to translate it, but I think that's a good translation. It helps us to understand that God forgives us so that we will worship him. Some people think that Christ died on the cross and God offers forgiveness so that they can get out of hell and do whatever they want to do. And I, I mean, let me just say that that's absolutely wrong. If you believe that way and you're living that way, then I would actually say you're not a Christian. 
because that's actually not how a person responds when they're forgiven. The response of a person who's forgiven by God is they worship God. They don't go out and live for themselves and worship themselves. So when you are in the depths of despair, what should you do? Turn your attention again to God and worship. Worship him considering his covenant promises. What are those covenant promises? Well, look at verse three. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, but with you there is forgiveness. So he promises to forgive. Now, what's the answer to verse three? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What's the answer to that? Who could stand before the Lord if he were to mark your iniquities? The answer is nobody could. I thought I would do a, a fun exercise with my family on Friday morning. We got up you know, early, getting breakfast ready, some of the kids doing their devotions. I was sitting at the table there, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to get these three-by-five cards. And I told the kids, everyone gets a three-by-five card, and every time you sin, you mark the card. And so, you know, whether you um, think something or say something or do something or have a motive, you mark the card. And then at the end of the day, we're going to take our cards, we're going to go in the fire in the back of the yard, and we're going to burn them. And then we're going to remember that the Lord does not mark the iniquities of those who are in his covenant family. That would be a fun exercise, wouldn't it be? So that's what I tried to do. So that first half hour didn't really go as planned. You know, uh, you know, we were trying to recognize our sins, but it was so much easier to recognize the sins of other people. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, you didn't share that with me. Mark that one down, you know? And it's like, you just judged me. So you, you got to mark that one down. So we had a lot of marks on our paper. Not many were because of our own conviction of sin. And uh, so we actually, about a half hour later, stopped it. And then that night, we did burn them, and we remembered that. Not all of us, but some of us did. And so... It was an interesting exercise. One of the things that I discovered from that is that, you know, we don't easily recognize our own sin, do we? Other people do. And if other people were to mark our sin, I think we would probably recognize we're, you know, worse sinners than we actually are. But the interesting thing is God actually knows every one of our sins. And the scripture actually teaches, now listen to this whole statement, because the scripture actually teaches that God actually does mark sins. He does mark sins. In fact, look at this text in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 13. Revelation 20 says this, I saw the dead, great and small. These are people who, were, who lived their life. They died, and now they're coming before God at the judgment. Standing before the throne, and books were opened, Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Oh, what's in that book? The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So there's God has marked the sins of those people, and they were judged based upon the marks, the accounting of their sins. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. So people came Stand before God, everyone. Each person was judged according to what he had done. So wait a second, because in this text right here, the scripture says that he marks iniquities. He will judge those based upon the marks of iniquity. Well, this is a judgment for unbelievers, and this will happen. 
God will mark their iniquities. And this is a sad reality that should move us to sorrow when we think about it because these people do not have any hope after this. God marks their iniquities and he sends them to hell for eternal punishment. But for the believer, for those who are in God's covenant family, though we deserve to have our iniquities marked and be counted against us, he doesn't do that for us. What does he promise for those in his covenant family? Verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He promises this in Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. That's actually his nature. It's his, that's his character. He does not treat us, those within his covenant family, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And the reality is God does mark iniquities for those who reject him. And they will be punished for that. They'll face the penalty for that. But he does not mark the iniquities for his children. And if he did, if he marked our iniquities and counted them against us, we could not stand in his presence and we could not enter into his glory. And so the question, therefore, is, is then how does a person get their iniquities erased, those marks erased? How does a person enter into God's covenant family? Hebrews 10 gives us this answer. This is the covenant that I will make with them. So here's the new covenant, the covenant that we are in. If you have believe in Jesus Christ, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. It's not like God erases his memory, right? It's not like that. Basically, what it's saying here is that God doesn't recall your sins to his mind and hold those against you in judgment. When God thinks about you, he's not thinking about all the list of bad things that you've done. If you're in his covenant family, he he considers you his child. He actually looks at you as he looks at his son in love. Verse 19 says, therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place, we can enter the presence of God. How is it possible? By the blood of Jesus. We can have assurance that our sins are forgiven because we have assurance that Jesus was marked in our place. He suffered in our place. God's promise to his covenant people is that he forgives our sins and will not hold our sins against us. And how is that possible? Because the Lord himself already went to the cross and he died for our sins in our place. So when you're swallowed up in despair, when you think about your sin and you think, I cannot stand before you, God, what should you do? Cry out to him for mercy and worship him. Thank him that Jesus took your place. I mean, consider your sin. Yes, think about your sin. Consider your sin. Confess your sin. Consider your due judgment that you, you, you deserve judgment. But then worship him and praise him that he has removed that from you because Jesus took it upon himself. 
Charles Spurgeon in the Treasury of David writes this, none fear the Lord like those who have experienced his forgiving love. Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than the dread of punishment. When a person is truly forgiven, when they recognize that they are forgiven, they truly worship the Lord. And so when you're in despair, cry out to the Lord, worship Yahweh, consider his covenant promises to you, and then rest your soul in Yahweh's word. Rest your soul in his word. Look at verse five. This is the third stanza. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. One of the interesting uh, contrasts in this poem here is the name Yahweh versus the name Adonai. In fact, if you look at the beginning of each stanza, you see Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, okay, that's Yahweh. Then you see Adonai, that's capital L, and then the rest is lowercase O-R-D. And you see a contrast between the two. Now, the name Adonai is a name for God that reminds us that, that God is majestic, that he's great. It speaks of his power and his authority. So when you think about Adonai, you think about the creator God who could speak all things into existence. And so notice, let's just go through some of these stanzas and notice this. Look at verse 1, stanza 1. So he is Adonai that I, or I'm sorry, he is Yahweh that I cry out to. I, sorry, I cry out to him, O Lord, O Yahweh. And why is that? Why am I crying out to him? Because he's the covenant God. He's the covenant-keeping God. But then he's Adonai because he's powerful enough to hear my prayers. I mean, he's able to hear every request of his children across the globe. That's powerful. Look at verse 3, which is stanza number 2. He is Yahweh that promises to forgive. And he's also Adonai, the powerful judge. So as the powerful judge, as Adonai, the powerful judge, we deserve to be judged for our sins, but he's Yahweh who forgives our sins as well. Look at stanza three, verse five. My soul waits for Yahweh. So I'm waiting for Yahweh. And why am I, why am I doing that? Because he promises to deliver. And then in verse six, he's our Adonai who is able to deliver us. And then we see in the last stanza as well, that contrast there. So in stanza three, the psalmist is waiting on the Lord, Yahweh, trusting his word will come true. And he's also waiting on Adonai, his Lord, who's the same, but it's a different name to help us understand that he is able to deliver us. What does it mean in verse number five that he says, I wait for the Lord, Yahweh, I wait for Yahweh, my soul waits in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord. My soul waits for Adonai. What does it mean by waiting in the Lord? I mean, he obviously says that, you know, what, three times here. He uses this illustration of a watchman who waits. I mean, sometimes in the scripture you think about the command to wait on the Lord. You ever read that in the Psalms and wondered what does that mean? Well, this is not a passive laziness. This is not like, you know, as a husband, your wife says she's going to get ready to go somewhere, and so you sit in the lazy chair, right, and you're waiting, and you're drifting in and out of consciousness. You know what I mean? It's not that kind of waiting. Or you're at the dentist's office and you're just waiting to, to have your teeth ripped out, you know, and you're, just, you're in agony, you know, when is this going to happen? This type of waiting is 
waiting in confidence with eager expectation. It's waiting in confidence with eager expectation. It's the picture of, of a groom that's at the front of the church or in California, I guess, the front of the ceremony in the middle of, you know, some beautiful uh, yard. Anyways, he's at the front, and he's waiting for his bride to come. You know, so you have the music playing, and he's, he's eagerly anticipating. He knows soon she's going to arrive right there. He just can't wait. It's like, is there another verse on this song? Okay, keep it going, but I can't wait for her to come. It's this eager expectation. That's what he's talking about here. We're waiting for the Lord. We're eagerly expecting him to do what he promises, to fulfill his word. And he uses this illustration of a watchman, which we probably really don't get, right? Now, they would have really understood this illustration very well because they live mostly in cities, and what you would do in this city was fortified with walls, and you would close the doors at night, and you'd put watchmen on top of the walls, and the watchmen would look out, and they were supposed to watch. <laughs> Is there an army that's going to come after us? Is something going to happen? And so you think about being a watchman, and you're going through the night, you know, think about the shadows that you could see in the distance. You know, maybe even you're walking along the wall and you're hearing noises and everything's kind of amplified at night. Kinda, everything's a little bit scarier. And they didn't have watches back then. So it wasn't like they're watching their watch. It's three in the morning. They got, you know, three hours left or two hours left till the sun rises. I mean, it's like, it's, you know, for them, it's two o'clock in the morning. And they're going, is it four or is it midnight? You know, <laughs> which, which one is it? And you're, you're just longing, like, when is the day going to break? Like, is that sun coming yet? It's like, you know, oh, maybe. No, it's not, not yet. And just think about even sometimes the terror that might be in that kind of situation if you were a night watchman. But he knows something certain is going to happen. There's something he's longing for. And what is it that he's longing for? The sun will rise at some point, right? He's looking for that sun. And when that sun rises, light will come again. It'll be warm again because they're... Climate is much like our climate. It'll be warm again, and he eagerly anticipates the rising of the sun. And so here he, he describes waiting on the Lord like a watchman who waits. Look at verse 5. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope. So what are we expecting him to do? Well, I'm hoping in his word. I'm expecting him to do what he promises in his word, what he says. Think about this night watchman. Think about the darkness. Think about the feelings he might have. And I think this is really a good illustration of what we face sometimes when we are in despair, when we feel very low. We can wonder how long this darkness is going to be upon our souls and our life. We can start worrying about the future. And the, the, the cloud of that worry can overcome our soul. We can sink into the depths of regret as we think about the past and decisions we made. Our emotions can sometimes trap us. We can feel like we're, it's hopeless. There's no way out of this situation. And so what's the psalmist saying to do in this? What do you do when you feel like that, when you're in the depths of despair? He's saying, rest your soul in the Lord. Rest your soul in God's word. Wait upon the Lord. Think about the, the darkness of worry. In those times when we are mulling over what might happen, what we think will happen, 
our souls can become very restless. We can start thinking the worst of things. I don't know about you, but sometimes that happens to me in the middle of the night. Start thinking the worst about a situation, how it's going to be terrible or whatever. We can go even further in the depths of despair. But we need to wait on the Lord. In other words, we're looking to his word. We're eagerly anticipating God. You're the one who's sovereign. You're in control. We're trusting you. We are waiting with thanksgiving and with faith. We're trusting his word. You think about Elijah. Remember Elijah in the Old Testament? The prophet Elijah. I mean, God used him in a pretty remarkable way. Sometimes we think about spiritual depression and difficulty. We think that happens to like certain types of people, not people like Elijah. You know, here's a guy who raised a boy from the dead. He defeated the prophets of Baal. That's pretty amazing. I mean, God used him in a pretty remarkable way. God provided for him by the brook, right? I mean, ravens came and brought him food. Now, if that all happened to you, how do you think you'd respond to any kind of threat after that? You know, Jezebel, the wicked, wicked woman, you know, wicked queen, she says, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow. And what did he do? He ran to the mountain, went to Mount Horeb, went to the cave, and he laid down, and he was depressed. He was so depressed he cried out to the Lord over and over, I'm all alone. No one's left in Israel. No one else loves the Lord but me. And I think I'm just going to die here. So what did, what did Elijah need in that situation? I mean, would you say that he would be a person that would be in the depths right there? Do you think that's Elijah in that situation? What did he need? Well, it's interesting. The Lord appeared to him in many different ways, right? But in the end, what God gave him that really helped him was God gave him truth. And God told Elijah that a couple of things. First of all, Jezebel is going to get her due. So don't worry about it. There are actually other people who love me in Israel, 7,000 prophets here. I'm actually going to give you a ministry partner, Elisha, and he's going to actually do greater things than you could do. And the point is, is that Elijah couldn't see beyond the darkness of his, of his worry and his concern. All he could see is tomorrow I'm going to die. That's all I can think about. I'm going to die tomorrow, and I'm alone, and nobody cares about me. Woe is me. And God says, hey, listen, there's something beyond that. Wait upon me, Elijah. Wait upon me. Trust me. Trust my word. And it's like, did the darkness just go away? Was it like those magical words and poof? No, he, he had to hold on to the Lord and trust and expect the Lord would do what he said. He had to look through the darkness of his worry and wait for the Lord to work by trusting his word. I think about a person who maybe regrets things in their past. Maybe they think about something that happened in the past, and they have that going over and over in their mind, and they can't get beyond that. They're sinking deeper and deeper into the sins or the mistakes they made in the past. When I think about a person like that, I think about Peter. I mean, if anyone messed up pretty bad, it's Peter. He denied the Lord. Even though he was warned he was going to deny the Lord, he still denied the Lord. And we find him depressed in the boat. I mean, he's out there doing the fishing, but he's like, I'm done. You know, God's probably done with me. And of course, you know the story how he came, talked to the Lord. But he regretted his sin of denying the Lord, and Jesus came and encouraged him. And essentially, 
without saying these words, Jesus basically was saying to him, listen, wait on the Lord. Like, I have better for you. Like, actually, I want you to love me and, and feed my sheep. Like, he, he needed to look through the darkness of his own despair and see that the Lord had something for him. In fact, the interesting thing is the Lord wanted to turn denying Peter into the Acts 2 Holy Spirit-empowered Peter, right? He wanted to turn him into that. But first, Peter needed to be in the waiting on the Lord, Peter. And that's part of God's plan many times. Sometimes the darkness of our emotions can overwhelm us. And again, like I said earlier, sometimes we can't even really explain it. You just, you just find yourself in a dark place. I think we need to remember when that happens that feelings don't always tell us the truth. But there is something that tells us the truth. What is it that tells us the truth? God's word. Feelings don't always tell us the truth. God's word does. And so I think what the psalmist is saying here is when the darkness of my feelings overwhelm me, I meditate on God's truth, on his word, and I wait on the Lord. Lord, I don't feel this way, but I know this is true, and I'm going to trust that. The Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote in his book, Spiritual Depression, God's supreme gift to man is his mind. It is as we apprehend and submit ourselves to truth that feelings follow. I must never first ask, how do I feel about this? That's really prevalent in our society. Like, how do you feel today, right? It's like, don't ask that question first. But do I believe this is true? Do I accept this is true? So when we're on the watchtower of life and the darkness is in our life and we can't see beyond the darkness, what do we do? Wait on the Lord and trust his word. Rest your soul in Yahweh's word. And then last, tell others of your hope in Yahweh's redemption. Tell others of your hope in Yahweh's redemption. Stanza one, the psalmist was looking really within his soul and seeing it sink down, so he cried out to the Lord. Stanza two, the psalmist looked up to the Lord and he worshiped him. Stanza three, the psalmist looked beyond his emotions to Yahweh's word. And then stanza four here, the psalmist looked out and proclaimed the goodness of the Lord. Look at verse seven. He says, O Israel. So notice now he's not speaking to the Lord or even to himself. He's speaking, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Notice he's telling others of what God has done for him. I think this is a point we, we miss a lot. Like we, we cry out to the Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry. And Lord, I, I, I believe your word. I'm waiting on you. And then we stay there. Even honestly, good Christians can do that. And there's actually another step here. Go out and tell someone. Go out and tell someone. When we are in despair over our sin, yes, cry, worship, rest, but then don't stop there. Proclaim the goodness of the Lord. Isn't this what David did in Psalm 51? He says, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation, of your salvation, and uphold me with the willing spirit. So, Lord, I, I want 
to receive again the, the joy that I had in your salvation. And Lord, when I, when I have that, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. He, he's saying, listen, I, Lord, when I, when I um, again understand and believe and, and cry out and worship you because of your forgiveness, I want to go to the next step and I want to serve you by telling other people about your goodness. And then notice actually the last verse there, last verse I have on the screen, verse 14. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. The gift of forgiveness from God is to be expressed by us in service to God and singing to God. Then last notice that the psalmist tells Israel of his hope. And he really hangs the truth for his forgiveness upon three hooks. He says in, in, in verse 7, he says, the first hook is, is that God loves me. Israel, God loves you. You're his covenant people. He loves you. Church, God loves you. You're his covenant people. He loves you. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. The second hook of truth is that God offers redemption. With him is plentiful redemption. God is a God who redeems. The third hook of truth there is that God is the one who himself redeems. Right? There's no other redeemer who can save. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse number eight. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's God himself who redeems. Most religions and most people try to earn their redemption. You know, how can I, how can I give something to the church so that God will give me something? How many prayers or candles can I light so that I can have forgiveness? What chants make me acceptable to God? How can I make up for my sin? What, what good works will make me acceptable to God? That's how most people think. But in verse 8, it says the opposite. The only one who can redeem you is God himself. And we find that the person who fulfilled that verse right there is Jesus Christ. He is the redeemer. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Isn't it wonderful in verse 8 that he, that he forgives all iniquities? He redeems us from all iniquities. Praise God for that. Now, I want you to look at the very beginning of this psalm. It starts off by saying, a song of ascents. Now, what is that talking about? Well, there were 15 psalms that the Israeli people would sing as they climbed up to go to the festivals for, to Jerusalem. And this is a, a little graphic to see. It really was a climb. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a big climb. And so it was very difficult. You know, you have your, your stuff on your back, or maybe it's on an animal, and you're climbing, and you're climbing, you're singing. You ever tried to, to run or, or to work out and sing at the same time? It's kind of hard to do. But they were to sing these as they went up to the festival. And I thought about this. It's like, who, who else would have sung this hymn right here? I was thinking about this. In John chapter 11 and 12, we see Jesus goes from the area over the other side of, of the Jordan, around Jericho there. He travels this road up there. He would have sung this psalm right here. Consider this psalm sung from the mouth of Jesus, not in despair because of his own sin, but recognizing the weight of the sin of the world that was about to fall upon him. 
Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. I mean, think about Jesus in that garden as he's crying out to his father, as he's on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you, O Lord, should count iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? And Jesus knew full well that he would be marked with iniquity, not because of his own iniquity, but the iniquity of the sins of the people. And he would not be able to stand. In fact, he would be on that cross. He would suffer. He would die. He would offer himself as a sacrifice. So think about it. He's singing this song as he travels to Jerusalem, and only a week later, he's going to be that sacrifice. In verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. It's possible because of Jesus that you may be healed. I think about as he went through that garden and endured that time of prayer and that suffering that night and the next day on the cross, and, and I think about scriptures like this in verse 5, on his mind, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope. Like there's suffering, there's death. And what does God promise? What does the Father promise? Resurrection. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And friends, that is why Jesus came. That's why he walked up that hill. That's why he went to Calvary. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. Now, this is a psalm written to God's covenant family, but maybe you're in here and you're not a Christian. You're not a person who's in God's covenant family, and God invites you to turn from your sin, to believe the gospel, and he promises that you can be forgiven. You can be in his covenant family. I want to talk to us as a church and those of us who face these times of despair. Let me encourage you to take these four responses and use them to respond to the Lord in your times of despair. Cry out to him. Worship him. Rest your soul in his word. Tell others of your hope in his redemption. Let's pray. Would you bow your heart with me? Would you talk to the Lord in your own spirit? Maybe there is a weight of sin upon your soul. If you're without Christ, I got good news for you. There is a Redeemer. And you can call out to him. In church, I don't know where you are individually, but it could be that you've just been being pulled down by something, go to the Lord, cry out to him now. Would you do that while you're sitting in your seat?